Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Hello again, my friends. Welcome to another episode in the vascular reaction pattern. Today's episode will be short and sweet as we'll be hitting the highlights on the figurate erythema group, also known as the gyrate erythemas. This group of disorders includes rashes that have a very distinct morphology, with lesions that are round, annular or ring-shaped, or polycyclic, where these round or annular lesions coalesce. The figurate erythema group includes erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Although they are lumped together and have names that sound alike, they all have very different causes and prognoses. And we'll be joined by Dr. Grumpy Pants today to give us a few pearls along the way. There are a few things as beautiful and frightening in dermatology as erythema gyratum repens. And if you don't know what I mean, you will in a few minutes, Nimrod. You know the drill. We'll start with a review of our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. So before we go over the figurate erythemas, let's quick review where we're at on our reaction patterns. The five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. We are currently going through the vascular disorders, which we are breaking up into eight groups or individual entities. And these include one, erythema multiforme, two, the toxic erythema group, which includes drug, bug, and toxin, which refers to the three subcategories, one, drug eruptions, including SJS and T. TEN, two, viral exanthems, or three, the toxin-mediated eruptions, including scarlet fever, staph-scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. Then the third vascular group is the figurate erythema group that we'll discuss today. Then we have four urticaria, five vasculitis, which refers to inflammation of the blood vessel wall, six vasculopathy, which refers to vascular damage with minimal or no vasculitis, then seven retiform purpura, which describes lesions with a dusky stellate pattern, and lastly, eight vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. And look, I know this kind of sounds like word vomit, but these will be listed in the study guide on the website as well, and with enough repetition in the episodes, I promise it will guide your differential for vascular appearing rashes. So, the first figurate erythema disorder that we'll discuss is erythema annularis centrifugum. I'll just briefly mention its highlights and refer you back to episode 10 from season 1 on annular disorders, specifically at the 20-minute mark where I discuss it more in depth. So erythema annularis centrifugum, also commonly called EAC, presents as erythematous annular lesions on the trunk or proximal extremities that slowly progress about 2 to 3 millimeters per day. And the lesions classically have a trailing scale, which means that the scale does not reach the expanding erythematous or red border. Lesions can be solitary or more disseminated in cases. They can be itchy, they may be not. And do you remember some of the triggers for erythema annulare centrificum? Or are you too busy updating your MySpace profile? 
There is a long list of possible triggers for EAC, including infections like tinea, medications such as hydrochlorothiazide and amitriptyline, foods such as blue cheese or tomatoes, autoimmune conditions, and very rarely cancers. Histology for erythema annularis centrifugum classically shows parakeratosis, which correlates with the scale, spongiosis, and a cuffing or coat sleeve perivascular infiltrate. This coat sleeve infiltrate refers to a dense lymphocytic inflammation that hugs the vasculature so tightly that it looks like a blue coat sleeve when the vessels are seen in longitudinal cuts on histology. And when I say lymphocytic inflammation, I'm referring to the lymphocytes being the predominant cell that we see. There will be other times when I mention, say, lymphohistiocytic inflammation, which refers to lymphocytes and histiocytes, lymphohistiocytic inflammation. We will get into the different types of inflammation more in the dermal reaction pattern in the next season. But anyways, back to EAC, treatment will include addressing any triggers, using topical steroids or calcineurin inhibitors, and UV treatments or oral erythromycin in resistant cases. Okay, bird brain, so what can you tell me about erythema gyratum repens? Why is it beautiful but have a pucker factor to go with it? Alright, grumpy butt, erythema gyratum repens is a very rare yet beautiful rash with multiple erythematous polycyclic rings that can look just like wood grain. Google some pictures and you won't forget it. Like EAC, the lesions of erythema gyratum repens can have a trailing scale, but unlike EAC, the lesions of EGR develop more rapidly, around 1 cm per day, and they're pretty diffuse in EGR. It all sounds beautiful and fun, but the rash is bad, bad news for the patient that has it, because erythema gyratum repens is associated with an internal cancer in 85% of cases, which makes it a perineoplastic syndrome. Lung cancer is the most commonly associated cancer with erythema gyratum repens, but it can also be due to many other cancers, including breast and GI cancers affecting the esophagus and stomach. The rash of erythema gyratum repens develops up to one year prior to the discovery of malignancy in around 80% of cases, and more than 50% of patients can have a peripheral eosinophilia. Again, the rash of erythema gyratum repens develops up to one year prior to the discovery of malignancies such as lung, breast, and GI cancers in around 80% of cases. With this strong malignancy association, patients will need an extensive workup, and once the malignancy is detected and treated, the rash should resolve. And that's the story for erythema gyratum repens. The end. Okay, Mr. Minnesota boy with all that Minnesota pride. Oh, you have your tater tot hot dish, whatever that means. The Minnesota Vikings, who haven't won a game since we beat the Russians in hockey and that repulsive word for carbonated beverages. What is it? Pop? Ah, it hurts just to say it. Not to mention the feature film Grumpy Old Men. I think I could have done a better job than Walter Matthau. Anyways, you better know this one if you claim to come from the woods of the Midwest. What is the name of the targetoid rash seen in Lyme disease, and how does one acquire this infection?
I'm sorry, Grumpy, but nobody plays a better grumpy old man than Walter Matthau. And you forgot to mention Prince and Bob Dylan. But anyways, getting back to learning, erythema migrans refers to the classic erythematous enlarging circular target lesion seen in Lyme disease. Lyme disease is caused by the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi, which is carried by the deer tick known as Ixides scapularis, which rides around on white-tailed deer and white-footed mice. Again, Lyme disease is caused by the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi, which is carried by the deer tick known as Ixides scapularis, which tends to hitch a ride on white-tailed deer and white-footed mice. And as you all know, Lyme disease is endemic to certain areas of the U.S., especially the Midwest, including my homeland in Minnesota, and also along with the northeastern U.S. It is also seen on the west coast of the United States and many parts of Europe, so there is a lot of providers who will encounter it. And fun fact, there were actually around 27,000 cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. in 2015, so it's not that uncommon. As dermatology providers, there are two common scenarios that we need to be familiar with in regards to Lyme disease. Scenario numero uno. Hey doc, I'm Bubba number one. Nice to meet you. So I got this little skin tag I want you to clip off for me. You mind? You look at the said skin tag and it's an embedded tick. I bet nearly every dermatology provider listening from an endemic area has been through this scenario. I know I have a couple times at least. And I want to spend a couple minutes on how to approach these situations as well. It's important to remember that ticks have to be attached for more than 24 hours to transmit Borrelia. Also, transmission only occurs in around 1-3% to of these prolonged tick bites. As far as antibiotic prophylaxis, the CDC recommends a single dose of 200 milligrams of doxycycline if the following criteria are met. One, there are no doxy allergies, duh. Two, the attached tick is identified as Ixides scapularis. Three, the tick has been estimated to have been attached for greater than 36 hours based on how engorged the tick is or based on the timing of the exposure. And four, the doxy can be started within 72 hours of tick removal. And speaking of tick removal, how should this be done? The tick should be grasped with a forceps as close as possible to the skin surface and gently but firmly pulled away. Don't jerk, don't twist, and don't squeeze or puncture the body of the tick because the fluid may be infectious. And once removed, you'll want to clean the area really well with soap and water. You'll then want to examine closely, especially with a dermatoscope if you have one, to make sure there are no tick mouthparts left behind in the patient's skin. Okay, so if your patient was waltzing through the forest this morning and comes in with an embedded tick and a red ring around it... Is that erythema migrans? The answer is nope. Remember, the tick has to be attached for more than one day. And erythema migrans typically appears a few days to one month after the initial bite. In this situation, the redness likely represents a hypersensitivity to the tick bite itself and is not technically erythema migrans. Okay, Pinhead, so that's scenario numero uno. Before we get to scenario dos, what can you tell me about the clinical presentation of erythema migrans?
Erythema migrans is present in 60 to 90% of Lyme disease cases. It starts as an erythematous macule that enlarges into an erythematous circular plaque that can have a central area of redness that gives it its bullseye appearance. The lesion will slowly expand over several weeks without treatment. Erythema migrans is typically on the torso, and there can be smaller secondary lesions due to either spread of the spirochetes or from other tick bites. Patients often have flu-like symptoms at the onset as well. And if Lyme disease goes untreated, patients are at risk for systemic disease, which can occur within days or weeks. Systemic involvement can cause severe arthralgias in around 60% of patients, neurologic disease like Bell's palsy in 10% of cases, and cardiac issues like AV blocks in 5% of cases. Again, systemic involvement in untreated Lyme disease can include severe arthralgias in around 60% of patients, neurologic disease like Bell's palsy in 10% of cases, and cardiac issues like AV blocks in 5% of cases. Okay, so we went through scenario number one, when to give prophylaxis for bubba number one with an embedded tick. How about scenario number two? Patient is bubba number two, waltzing through the forest two weeks ago and comes in with the classic erythema migraines. How do you handle this situation? If the rash and story are classic for erythema migrans, you don't need a biopsy and can proceed with treatment. If the rash is localized, you will treat with doxycycline 100 mg BID for 2-3 to three weeks. If the patient has an allergy to doxy or they are pregnant, then you will reach for amoxicillin 500 mg Q8 hours for 2-3 to three weeks. In this situation with Bubba number 2, the patient who presents in the early weeks of erythema migrans, no lab work is needed. Labs for Lyme disease are ordered when patients have symptoms suggestive of Lyme disease, but they don't recall a tick bite or have had erythema migrans. In these situations, a screening test with enzyme immunoassays or ELISA are performed and then confirmed with Western blot if positive. But since patients in this scenario aren't having a rash, it isn't typically a workup that dermatologists perform. All right, Ninny Hammer, let's shift gears to figure it erythema number four, erythema marginatum. Tell me what you know. Erythema marginatum is a rarely encountered rash that is one of the major criteria for rheumatic fever. If you recall from the last episode, erythema marginatum is the E in the Jones criteria mnemonic. It is typically seen within weeks of strep throat or a group A strep skin infection. Erythema marginatum appears as erythematous macules and patches in an annular or polycyclic arrangement on the trunk and proximal extremities. And how fast does the rash spread? Erythema marginatum is somewhere in the middle at 2 to 12 millimeters per day, compared to EAC expanding slowly while erythema gyratum repens expands rapidly. And to refresh your memory on rheumatic fever a bit, remember that it occurs in around 3% of kids after an untreated group A strep infection of the throat. Of these rheumatic fever patients, less than 10% will get erythema marginatum, so it's not very common. We believe rheumatic fever is caused by molecular mimicry, whereby our immune system processes streps M protein and then starts to attack similar proteins in our bodies such as myosin. 
two to five weeks after the infection starts, the kid gets rheumatic fever, which is diagnosed using major and minor criteria. A number of my friends and I made it through rheumatic fever without any antibiotics or medical attention or any attention at all. If rheumatic fever existed today, I fear that would be the end of the millennials. So can you name the major and minor criteria for rheumatic fever? For rheumatic fever, we use the revised Jones criteria. The mnemonic to remember for the major criteria is Jones. So remember, J is for joint arthropathy, which is a migratory arthritis affecting the large joints and is seen in one-third to two-thirds of patients with rheumatic fever. For the O in Jones, picture a heart shape and remember carditis that can be clinical or subclinical and seen in 50 to 70% of cases. N is for subcutaneous nodules seen in up to 10% of cases, E for erythema marginatum, which is seen in less than 10% of cases, and S is for Sydenham's chorea or other CNS changes seen in 10 to 30% of patients. Again, for the major criteria for rheumatic fever, remember Jones with J for joint inflammation or arthritis, O is the heart-shaped carditis, N for subcutaneous nodules, E for erythema marginatum, and S for Sydenham's chorea. Then there's the Jones minor criteria, which include arthralgias, which simply refers to joint pain, fevers, elevated ESR or C-reactive protein, and prolonged PR interval on ECG. So you have a kid with a history of strep throat and what looks like erythema marginatum? What do you do with him? Send him to Disney and hope the magic cures him? First, we want to clinch the diagnosis. This will be done alongside the pediatrician or PCP, where labs include FCBC, ASO titer, ESR, and CRP. Patients will also need a cardiac workup with an ECG and echocardiogram. Once the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever is made, the treatment will include antibiotics, anti-inflammatory meds, and treating other symptoms. Antibiotics to eradicate group A strep carriage include penicillins like penicillin G or amoxicillin, a variety of cephalosporins, azithromycin, clarithromycin, or clindamycin. Since patients will often have arthritis or arthralgias, anti-inflammatory meds like naproxen are often an important part of management. And if patients have cardiac involvement or neurologic involvement, getting a cardiologist and neurologist on board will be helpful since patients will need close cardiac monitoring and anticonvulsants such as valproic acid or carbamazepine. Alright, so as promised, that was a short and sweet episode on the figurate or gyrate erythemas. Let's quickly hit the highlights for each of these disorders. So remember, your figurate erythemas consist of round, annular, or polycyclic lesions that coalesce. The figurate erythema group includes erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Erythema annularis centrifugum, aka EAC, presents with annular lesions that slowly progress around 2-3 to millimeters per day and classically have a trailing scale. EAC has a variety of associations including infection, medications, foods, and rarely cancers. Erythema gyratum repens presents with rapidly expanding erythematous polycyclic rings that can look like wood grain. Like EAC, the lesions of EGR can have a trailing scale, but unlike EAC, the lesions of EGR develop more rapidly around one centimeter per day. 
Erythema gyratum repens is associated with internal cancer in 85% of cases, which is most often lung cancers, and the rash develops prior to the cancer in 80% of erythema gyratum repens cases. Then there's erythema migrans, which presents with an erythematous enlarging circular target lesion that occurs days to weeks after the bite of the tick ixides scapularis. The tick must be attached for at least 24 hours to transmit the pathogenic Borrelia in the bite. Treatment includes doxycycline 100 mg BID for 2-3 to three weeks or amoxicillin 500 mg Q8 hours for 2-3 to three weeks if the patient is allergic to doxy, pregnant, or both. Then lastly, we have erythema marginatum, which is typically seen within weeks of strep throat or a group A strep skin infection in the setting of rheumatic fever. It appears as erythematous macules and patches in an annular or polycyclic arrangement on the trunk and proximal extremities. Don't forget your Jones criteria for making the diagnosis. Joint arthritis, heart shape for carditis, sub-Q nodules, erythema marginatum, and Sydenham's chorea. Treatment of rheumatic fever includes antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, and treatment of cardiac and neurologic involvement with appropriate referrals. I cannot bear one more consult from that deranged medicine service at Sweaty Palms Medical. I was once consulted solely because the patient's name was Stephen Johnson. Newsflash, there were absolutely no clinically significant lesions. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.